We turn again in our Bibles uh, to Luke 8, and <clears throat> these two little paragraphs from verse 16 down to verse 21 uh, in Luke chapter 8. I wonder how you know if someone is listening to you. How do you know uh, if someone has got it when you have spoken to them? Some people uh, have the ability to tune out what people are saying, and I have been accused of that myself, no doubt unfairly, of tuning out what is being said to me when there's something important, perhaps some football on the television or something like that, an ability to tune out what is being said. The message went out, it appeared to be heard, but it wasn't remembered. And there are wives up and down the country who complain bitterly that their husbands never hear their voice. They tune out automatically what is being said. How do you know if someone has listened well? How do you know if they have really heard, if they have got it? You know because they put into practice what it was that was asked of them. Uh, so you ask a member of the family to go down to Tesco's and to buy a carton of orange juice, packet, a packet of cornflakes and a watermelon, and they say, okay, and they go off to do it. And then half an hour later, you get a text saying, uh, was it grapes or strawberries you asked me to get uh, in the shop? And you know fine well that they had tuned out what was said. They hadn't been listening. Or you leave home and you yell up the stairs, remember to clean your room and let the cat out. Okay, Dad, comes the response. But when you come back, the room looks just as usual, just as though it's been recently burgled and the cat <laughs> is still where it was. The only way of telling if someone has picked you up is if they actually perform what it was they said they would do. Now last Sunday, we were looking at the parable of the sower. Or we could call it the parable of the soils, the four soils. And we saw that the purpose of the parable was to show that genuine Christianity, genuine following of Jesus is really only shown by the change that the gospel produces in our lives. It's when we obey uh, the commands of Christ and our lives change that we show that we are Jesus' people. There will be a harvest of new attitudes to other people, kindlier uh, attitudes, new gratitude. There will be a zeal for studying the word and sharing the faith. There will be a gradual change in a person as he or she becomes more like Jesus. And that's the contrast to the person who, though they had heard the message and perhaps even made a quick but superficial response to the message, they never produce character change. Now, the two little sections that we're going to be looking at this morning, they follow on immediately after the parable of the sower. And what they're doing, in effect, is they are reinforcing that basic message that true discipleship is shown by fruit. They are ramming home, if you like, the importance of not just being a hearer, but a doer of what Jesus says. So in the first little paragraph, Jesus tells a parable which teaches us about the purpose of the gospel. The purpose of the gospel is to produce changed lives. In the second parable, Jesus talks about the privilege of the gospel. 
The gospel brings us into the family of God. Those who are in the family of God uh, are those and those only who hear and obey what Jesus has said. And in between, we have Jesus' exhortation to consider carefully how you hear. So we're going to look at these three heads in turn. First of all, then, looking at the purpose of the gospel. The purpose of the gospel is to produce changed lives. No one lights a lamp and hides it in a jar or puts it under a bed. Instead, he puts it on a stand so that those who come in can see the light. Jesus used the same illustration uh, in the Sermon on the Mount, back in Matthew chapter 5, verse 14. Uh, so I think it's fair of us to assume that the, the meaning of this illustration will be the same as it is back then. And in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus has a more expanded version of it. And the point is that the gospel is to change lives so that Christians will illuminate a dark world. Jesus also speaks about uh, Christians as a group being like a city set on a hill. So we're to, to shine and confront the darkness. When we think of, of some of Jesus' parables in the modern day, we have to kind of place ourselves back into a different era. It's hard to really appreciate fully the significance of uh, a candle or a light uh, in a city where we are continually surrounded by lights, where there are street lamps, where the concept of of complete darkness is sometimes hard for people to grasp. But imagine, if you will, the, the power going off, the electricity in, in your home going off in the middle of winter. Uh, you got out of bed and you went to turn on the switch and there's no response, still darkness. And so you walk to the door, you crack your shin on the end of the bed, uh, you go down the stairs, uh, you step on a set of, of uh, roller skates that's been conveniently placed in the landing and you nearly break your leg. Eventually you get down to the kitchen, you struggle over to, to that uh, cupboard where candles are kept for such an emergency. You manage to light the candle and now you can see. And with this candle, even though it's old-fashioned uh, lighting, it's still shedding a light by which you can walk. And the obstacles are now made plain and you're able to go back to your room without injuring yourself and get dressed and prepare the breakfast or whatever needs to be done. Christians are to be like light. We bring the light of Jesus into the world about us so that people can see things that they would not see without the gospel. Without the gospel, people are blind to reality. They live in darkness, uh, they are bumping around, and they are hurting themselves spiritually. They need people who have the light of Jesus in their lives and who are living openly and consistently as Christians uh, so that they are known as Christians. And so their deeds, their lifestyle is in tune with their profession, their words. People who light up the darkness, who confront the darkness around. 
Christian then is someone who's ready to point to Jesus as the Savior, as the one who said, I am the light of the world. He who believes in me shall not walk in darkness. See, the world without the Lord Jesus quickly becomes a very dark place. People without the light of Jesus in their lives uh, can soon slip into to lifestyles which are dark and harmful. Uh, we all uh, sometimes feel the, the, the atmosphere where there is no Christian witness. Sometimes, for example, it can be a very aggressive atmosphere or uh, an atmosphere which is loaded with innuendo, sexual innuendo, or where there is jealousy and so on. And the Christian is someone who is to shine the light of Jesus into this and confront the darkness and show needy people the Saviour they need to deliver them. Now, lights in Jesus' day were uh, wicks in clay vessels with oil in them. And we are Christians. We are simply clay vessels. Sometimes we've got lots of cracks in us. But we, by God's grace, bear the Spirit of God. And by God's grace, he enables us to shine, to bring something of the light of Jesus into the darkness. Now, if your, if your home was in darkness, in this hypothetical power cut, and you had a candle, it would be crazy, wouldn't it, to take the, the lit candle and put it under your bed. Uh, it would be a fire hazard for one thing. It wouldn't be very sensible for the other thing because it would obscure the light. You would take that candle, wouldn't you? You would place the candle in the most prominent part of the room so that that light, which is not powerful light, it's just a candle, but it will shine as far as it can. It will illuminate the dark room. In the same way, the person who thinks that they're a Christian and yet isn't shining for the Lord may be deluding themselves. You sometimes hear people say, well, you know, <clears throat> my faith's a private matter. I don't like to talk about it. Well, there's no mention of a private faith in the Bible. Jesus uh, doesn't know anything about a private faith. Jesus, on the other hand, is continually exhorting us to come out of the closet, to shine, to speak a word, to confront the kingdom of darkness, to be open about him, to be unashamed of him. And very often the people who speak about a private faith when you press a little further, you find that they are totally clueless about the Bible. Never speak about spiritual things. Have no desire to share the gospel with other people. Their lifestyle is no different from people who wouldn't say they're Christians at all. They're nice enough people. But when it comes to those decisive things, uh, an appetite for spiritual things, a desire to read the Bible, a desire to share Christ, they're no different. Are no different. And Jesus says, in any case, it's impossible to permanently hide uh, where we stand in relation to the gospel. What is hidden will come out sooner or later. And the danger is, as verse 18 points out, that that uh, fact will be shown when it is too late. 
The person who has received the gospel and keeps it hidden, never lets the fact be known, will one day stand in the glare of the judgment throne of Christ. And the reality will be shown clearly. There is nothing hidden that will not be disclosed, nothing concealed that will not be known or brought out into the open. So that kind of puts it in perspective. The Christian is someone who uh, knows that one day he'll stand before Jesus and is far more afraid of being ashamed on that day than he's afraid of being ashamed because people... uh, ridicule him or or oppose him because he is open about his faith just now. The only reason that someone would stay tight-lipped now is if really there's no substance to their notion that they are Christians. Bible very clearly ties in genuine Christian faith with a public profession of Jesus. The word is near you, Romans 10 tells us. It's in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we are proclaiming. That is, if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart, God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. What a joy it was last uh, last Sunday to, to hear the testimony of our sisters who were nailing their colors firmly to the mast, who were taking a stand for Jesus, confessing him with their lips. A joy that is. Let your light shine before men. Look secondly at the privilege that it is of being members of Jesus' family. Jesus' true family are those and only those who have heard his word and put it into practice. In the next scene, Jesus is teaching uh, the crowd in a house. You've got to imagine the house is jam-packed, right? Uh, People are listening carefully to Jesus' every word. And just as Jesus is is teaching them... uh, Somebody comes in and kind of sidles up to Jesus rather gingerly and interrupts his teaching, whispers in Jesus' ear, Jesus, your mother and your brothers are waiting for you outside. Now it's interesting, isn't it, that Mary and Jesus' brothers, or we should say really his half-brothers, think that they have a right to interrupt our Lord's ministry so that they can speak to him. They, Luke doesn't tell us what they wanted, but he is implying, isn't he, that they thought that they had some kind of special ownership of Jesus. They were family, and so they could call him away from his ministry. Now, there's a danger that people can think that they're in the family of God and be deceiving themselves. They can think that they have some ownership of Jesus and his church where they haven't. I've come across people who, who behaved as though they owned the church. Uh, they acted as petty dictators. They would lay down the law, defend unspoken rules. They would assume an interest in the church because of their family connections or because of long years of attendance or whatever. And it was churchianity rather than Christianity. 
They thought that they owned the church. But they never really spoke about spiritual things in a way that indicated that they had been converted, that they had been to Jesus. They had no spiritual appetite. No burden that people would be saved. They were assuming a place that they never had. On the other hand, what a privilege it is to be in the true family of Jesus. And Jesus says that his true family are those who hear his words and put them into practice. That is mind-blowing. To have Jesus as our elder brother. With Jesus to come to the living God as father. To use that Aramaic word that uh, Jesus uh, refers to and, and is picked up in the epistles. Abba. Abba, Father. What a privilege. He who made the stars comes now to be our Father. The privilege of being in God's family. Okay. None of us are the finished article. But we're being changed. If we could have gone into that, that house that day, we would have come across people from all walks of life. And I am absolutely sure they would have been broken people. There were always broken people who were following Jesus. People who were broken physically, whose health was, was bad. People who were demon-possessed. People who were at their wits' end. And Jesus was making them whole. We're gathering at that, ultimately, aren't we? We're all broken people here, every one of us. From the one behind the desk to those in front. All of us broken people. Jesus is making us whole again. He's brought us into his family. And he's not ashamed to call us brothers and sisters. That's what the writer to the Hebrews says so powerfully. He says, both the one who makes men holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers. He says, I declare your name to my brothers in the presence of the congregation. I will sing your praises. It's a beautiful verse, isn't it? He's not ashamed to call us brothers and sisters. The privilege of being in his family. Listen in closing to the application, the exhortation, the warning. There's a principle that Jesus mentioned here, which is mentioned often in the scriptures. It's the principle of being blessed through obedience, addition through obedience, subtraction through disobedience. Whoever has will be given more. Whoever does not have, even what he thinks he has, will be taken from him. What does that mean? It means the true Christian who is responding obediently to the Bible, will grow in her understanding of the Bible. Understanding is not, it's not a case of filling our minds with facts. Wisdom in, in the Bible sense is not that you're smart, you know a lot, but that you're obeying what you do know. And as you obey what you're taught in the Bible, you're given more you will grow 
in your understanding of the Bible, insofar as you're putting into practice what you already know, you'll grow wiser. But, uh, and this other side of the coin, if we're not doing that, then I'm afraid what we already have is taken from us. We grow duller in our understanding. And there's a sense in which eventually this book, this, this revelation of God is taken from us. We lose all handle on God's word to us. This was very powerfully illustrated once uh, <clears throat> back in the, the 17th century. Uh, some of you might have heard of the, the Puritan writer Thomas Goodwin. And he was, he was really a scholar. He was a writer. He's left uh, a lot of, of uh, very uh, great writings. But Goodwin uh, had great admiration for a very fiery preacher uh, by the name of John Rogers, who preached in Dedham. I think Dedham is in Norfolk, if I'm not mistaken. But it was in the country, and he was a country preacher. Uh, we'd probably say he was a fire and brimstone preacher. And this very scholarly Goodwin wanted to go and hear Rogers preach. And he gives an account of the journey that he made to go and hear this fiery country preacher who was preaching midweek. I took a journey to hear him preach on his lecture day. And Mr. Rogers was preaching on the subject of the scriptures. And in his sermon, he fell into such an expostulation with the people about their neglect of the Bible. The people weren't hearing the word of God. And he impersonated God to the people. He said, well, I have trusted you so long with my Bible, and yet you have slighted it. It lies in such and such houses all covered with dust and cobwebs. Do you not care to listen to it? Do you use my Bible so? Well, you shall have my Bible no longer. And then uh, Goodman says he he literally picked up the Bible that was lying on the lectern and he walked uh, away from the pulpit with the Bible and then as it seemed that he was going to go out of the church uh, taking the Bible away from them, he turned around and again uh, taking the, the part of the Lord most earnestly, he said, uh, sorry, this time taking the part of the people. He said, Lord, whatever you do to us, don't take the Bible from us. Kill our children, burn our houses, destroy our goods. Only spare us your Bible. Do not take away the Bible. And then he turned again. And this time again, he impersonated the Lord and said to the people, Say you so? Well, I will try you a little while longer. Here is my Bible for you. I will see how you use it, whether you will love it more, observe it more. Practice it more. Live more according to it. The entire congregation, Goodwin says, was moved to tears. And Goodwin himself was so deeply moved that when he left the church, he could not mount his horse. He was so moved by the, the feeling that he himself had not been listening as he ought to have done to the word. And for quarter of an hour he stood by his horse weeping over his own failure to put into practice what he had been studying in the word of God. So friends, each one of us has to ask this morning as we're closing, how am I 
listening to the word? How am I listening to the word? Am I listening carefully to the word? Just some practical suggestions as we close. How we may listen carefully to the word. Surely it means, first of all, that we're willing to take time with our Bibles. That we will take time, yeah? to read our Bibles, that we'll not hurry through it, that we're not concerned to get through our Bible reading just as quickly as we can. Come across uh, tourists in the past when we we lived in Skye, especially uh, American friends, and they would come and say, we want to do Scotland in three days. How can we do Scotland in three days? Where do we need to go? How do, you, how do you tell someone how you do Scotland in three days? You can tell them they can go to Edinburgh, they can go to Stirling, they can go to Loch Lomond, go to Skye. But you can't do Scotland in three days. You can see some of the sights, but you'll never understand the place in three days. And similarly, you can't rush the word of God. You can't just rush your way through the scriptures. You have to spend time. And there is no short-circuiting that. Secondly, we should prize the word of God. We really ought to prize uh, our Bibles, our, our private reading, and prize the preaching of the word of God. Why? Because we recognize that this is food for our souls, that it, that it changes lives. It's the word of life. Roland Hill, another uh, earlier preacher, uh, was responding to people who were sometimes uh, impatient because they felt that uh, the, the preacher who was explaining the word to them was rather dull. He didn't have a very exciting style. And he used this illustration. He said, if you were to go to, to hear the reading of the will of a relative who had died, And you were expecting to receive a legacy. You would not complain about the manner of delivery of the person who was reading that will. Why? Because you had a great interest. You knew there was something that was really important for you to hear. That's the same with the word, isn't it? There's so many incidentals, aren't there? People could quibble about the peculiarities, the distinctives of what A group does when it gathers to worship. But in the end of the day, what we have is the gold that God has given us. The word, the life-changing word. And we prize that. Also, if we're going to listen carefully to the word of God, then we need to watch that we don't listen theoretically to the word. Rather than practically. As we hear the word, let's not use the word as some kind of a football that we kick about, you know. So when we hear the word of God speaking of the, the election of God, that he chooses us before we were even born, we could spend ages knocking that one around. But rather, a proper response is to bow in wonder. And gratitude that God should have concern, should have thought of me before I had done any good deed to warrant his love. Unmerited love. 
Or if you're reading about justification, you respond to it by stopping trusting in your own goodness and instead just trusting in Christ's goodness. Refusing to try and justify yourself by putting up a facade of reputation, hiding your sins from others, or putting others down so that you look better, or trying to balance out your evil and your good deeds to get credit with God. We stop that whole game and we trust in Christ. Or if we're reading about how God sanctifies us, how he makes us holy, we Seek holiness. We respond to the word of God by pursuing love, by wanting the growth of real Christian love in our lives so that we're looking out for the best interests of those around us, of our neighbor, despite the cost to ourselves. So listening carefully means being practical in applying the word that we hear. means also that we don't fall into that trap of hearing the word and applying it to somebody else. Which we do, don't we, so often. If you're like me, you do. We think, oh, what a good word for so-and-so. Or what a shame that so-and-so wasn't here to hear that message today. That's not how we are to sit under the word of God. It's a word for ourselves to be applied to ourselves. And then finally, if we're listening carefully to the word then we will be trying under God to measure in our lives practical progress, visible progress. How am I getting on under God's word? How has it really changed me over the week? How is it helping me with this besetting sin in my life? Am I gaining the victory over it because God's word is shining like a searchlight upon? I'm examining myself, looking for progress. (coughs) Jesus' people are the people who hear his words and put them into practice. It's as simple, it's as absolutely vital as that. Take care how you listen. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word to us this morning. Uh, We pray, Lord, that uh, we would put these principles into practice, that we would not be hearers only of the word, but doers also. Help us, Lord, we pray, to have the meek, submissive spirit that loves uh, to hear your voice and respond in faith and obedience. And may this, O God, be to your glory. In Jesus' name.